according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're starting a new uh, episode today in our Life of Christ study, episode 5, in uh, the final work of week at Jerusalem, episode number 5. And for this, join me in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23. This episode will take us down through the end of the chapter and even through the first 14 verses of uh, chapter 22. The title of this, according to the Harmony of the Gospels we've been following, is uh, The Sanhedrin Challenges Jesus, Answered by Parables. And we're going to handle it in four segments, um, verses 23 through 27 will be the, the challenge itself, and uh, we'll go through that today. And then the parable of two sons in verses 28 through 32, the parable of the, oh, I see, parable of the landowner is what it's called in this uh, pericope heading. I called it the parable of the tower, so I may, I may rename that. And then uh, finally we get into the marriage feast information in chapter t- uh, 22, verses 1 through 14. We're going to handle this in four sections. Um, there are parallel accounts in Mark 11 and 12 and in Luke 20, uh, but in both cases, both in Mark and in Luke, um, we have uh, really only the parallels in uh, section 1 and in uh, section 3. The second section with the parable of the two sons isn't, isn't covered in Matthew or Luke. And then the uh, marriage supper, the marriage feast there is not covered in, Mar- in Mark or Luke either. And we'll discuss those as we come to each one and uh, be able to harmonize them for you. There is a, a similar message in Luke related to a marriage feast, but it comes much earlier. It comes in Luke 14, much earlier than this episode. And we'll discuss why the marriage feast and the marriage supper, uh, why we have to handle those in different ways and, and uh, approach them the way that we do. So anyway, stay tuned. Uh, this is going to be a several session episode before we're ready to move on to episode six. And uh, I'm looking forward to it and primarily because there's so much confusion out there. There's uh, the effort on the part of some to try to shove the rapture into into Matthew and to try to um, confuse things that should be clear rather than confused. So well, if we slow down and take our time, study the details for what they are, I think we'll do ourselves uh, a tremendous favor in the process of this study. So Before we do anything, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Distractions are set aside and we're humble under the authority of God's truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this new day and the truth of your word that you have set before us. We Thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble together. And we just look forward, Father, to studying line upon line, precept upon precept, a little here, a little there. Father, we realize that uh, we can't learn everything all at once and we can't learn it all today. But this is a day where we can get just a little bit more, adding it to what you've already blessed us with, Father. And I thank you for that. So, Father, set aside the distractions. Take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Fix our eyes firmly upon your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's read through verses 23 through 27, and uh, and then we'll take it back from the top. Um, This is, by the way, Tuesday of the Crucifixion Week, if you've not been following in the the overall harmony. Um, But verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will, all, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? Uh, but if we say from men, that's a problem, too. <laughs> if we say from men, we fear the people. For they all regard John as a prophet. And so answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. This is Matthew 21, 27. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And so he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, there it is. And uh, 
It goes on, uh, but what do you think in verse 28? And he asked them uh, a question of his own. And uh, the confrontation here has gotten more and more pointed. It's gotten more and more direct, which you might expect, because uh, these guys actually are trying to kill him anyway, and he knows that. And uh, he is uh, simply delivering his final uh, testimonies and his final messages before he uh, doesn't surrender to their custody, before he submits to the will of the Father and goes to accomplish our salvation here this uh, coming Friday. So uh, we're getting real close to the cross. And as these messages are unfolding, we're going to notice he, he doesn't have time. I mean, there's not time for any, uh, in some cases, even polite or diplomatic or nice ways to say certain things. He's just hitting it hard and fast and blunt and uh, very direct. And uh, the tone here is uh, is very confrontational, very direct. And, uh, and, and I think we can glean from that in uh, in certain applications. So let's take it back from the beginning. Um, I don't want to lose focus on, on really what we're going to deal with today, and that's the first se- segment here. Uh, as we have time, we'll move on to deal with the parable of the two sons, and, and we won't get anywhere near the, the parable of the tower or the parable of the landowner that follows. Um, recognize, first of all, though, that these people want him dead. The, the heading is interesting. The Sanhedrin challenges Jesus. Okay, and this takes some historical study. You've got to understand the context for it. The word Sanhedrin does not appear in this segment. It simply calls them the uh, chief priests and the elders of the people, and that's a description of what exactly the Sanhedrin actually was. Uh, so, in the outline, then uh, I'm just going to number these one, two, three, and four based on the segments we're dealing with, and then the subpoints uh, accordingly. So main point one, the very body which was plotting his death now present a rebellious, presents a rebellious challenge to Jesus authority. This is a rebellious challenge. And we're going to see the the specifics on this, how really how disrespectful and how ugly they are towards him and uh, interrupting his teaching, for example, which we'll highlight here in just a moment. But this is clearly the Sanhedrin. I think we can relate this very well over to John chapter 11. Verses 47 through 53, in addition to the description we have here, chief priests and elders of the people. This was the body of religious elders that the Romans allowed to have authority over religious affairs. The Romans, so long as they received their tribute, whether it was under Herod or whether it was under Pilate or whether it was under some other uh, governor as such, the Romans allowed a lot of freedom for the native, the conquered native peoples to go ahead and handle their own business. And if... um, Allowing them to handle their religious business uh, kept them happy and kept them content and prevented them from rebelling. Then, then the Romans were fine letting them do that. And that was only when uh, you know the, the uh, idea of, of national rebellion started to creep in that they would step in and lower the, uh, the iron fist and, and um, exercise more direct control. Uh, let me grab John 11 here for the moment, this uh, Sanhedrin body. A body of 70 elders, or 71, and including the high priest, which was the president of this body. And then um, when you study the history of it, 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 had some, it ebbed and flowed and had some different uh, eras, some different time frames, when the Sadducee party tended to uh, be more dominant, or when the Pharisees tended to be more dominant, and a little bit of back and forth related to that. Uh, but here we see it uh, with the elders of the people. John 11 Verses 47 through 53, remember this? In the um, aftermath of the uh, uh, resurrection, uh, resuscitation of Lazarus here. Um, we're told, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. And this was evidently a subset, not the entire council, uh, but a, what we would call today a subcommittee, right? Of, uh, of our Congress. They, they, they put together a committee or a subcommittee and um, they convene this as the what are we going to do about Jesus committee within the, within the Sanhedrin itself. Uh, for this man is performing many signs and they, they are viewing that as if that's a problem, okay? As if that's something wrong, something that's not to be tolerated. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Again, they're saying this as if it's a problem. We would, of course, love it if the entire human race became believers in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Um, but then they really betray their true fears. Um, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's what's intolerable. 
Okay, that's what they cannot allow happen. And if that means that he has to die, that they have to murder him, and okay, yeah, right, murder's bad, but uh, it's not as bad as them losing their control, losing their power, losing where they are, see. And and also, look at the order on that, our place and our nation. You know, uh, imagine the, the Jewish nation being destroyed, that's bad. Okay. But worse than that, what do they list first than our nation is our place. The, the privileged position that we have as the Sanhedrin, the privileged position we have where the Romans allow us to, to, uh, to run the, the daily affairs of the Jewish people here in Jerusalem, that actually is more important to them than uh, the, the national survival. I think that's an interesting order they put it in. So the Romans will come, take away both our place and our nation. And that just is unacceptable. And so one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that then that the whole nation, or and that the whole nation should not perish. And uh, his, his solution, very carnally minded, very uh, satanically motivated, is it's better off for us if we just kill him, and then we'll be spared. We'll be safe. Okay? And it's interesting because even in his carnality, even in his satanic um, pursuits, he's actually speaking the truth. Uh, the Holy Spirit has crafted his words. Uh, we see this here in verse 51. He did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Is this not a truth that one is dying for the many, that he is becoming the substitute, that he is dying on behalf of others? And so... Um, not in the way, of course, that this that Caiaphas thinks, but it is a truth in what he's saying. And, and it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful the way that God uh, uh, reveals this uh, at the time and in Scripture, almost in a, in a tongue-in-cheek, double entendre kind of way. Uh, that he would die for the nation, and not only for that, that nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, the whole human race. The promise to Abraham, and you, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed. He is indeed the second Adam providing redemption for the descendants of the first Adam. And so, from that day on, in response to Caiaphas's leadership, the high priest, and now with the stamp of approval for the entire Sanhedrin, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. He was aware, he was briefed, not because of omniscience, but because of his prophetic office. He knew that this was their intent and that to obey his father, he needed to stay alive until, until uh, Good Friday, until the Passover, where he would offer himself as the Passover lamb. So this is the very body that's plotting his death. The chief priests, the, the ruling priests, which include the high priest, his immediate family, the others that are in that authoritative position, and the elders of Israel, the various tribal elders that are represented on the, uh, the Sanhedrin council itself. They're now presenting a rebellious challenge to Jesus and his authority. Back to Matthew 21 now. Notice, they came to him while he was teaching. In the midst of his teaching, the chief priests and tribal elders of Israel challenged Jesus' authority in the midst of his teaching. Uh, not uh, you know, waiting for class to be over, not waiting for uh, an intermission or question and answer time or however you know, format they had back then. Uh, but the, the, the participle, didasco is the verb to teach, and the, the participle expressed here uh, indicates, it's pretty vivid, indicating the ongoing process of the teaching, and they just storm right in, stopping the proceedings. Who are you? What are you doing here? Who gave you this authority? What authority do you have? And who gave you this authority? See. And uh, trying to stop him. And I love this. You know, it's a question they've had before anyway, and he's answered it always. And he's always said, my teaching is not mine, but I, I'm delivering the word of the one who sent me. And, and uh, he's already had the, the conflicts with this very same crowd on a previous trip to Jerusalem. Uh, where uh, he spoke of his father and he spoke of their father. And that, that conversation didn't go very well because uh, they said, well, we have Abraham as our father. And he said, no, you don't. You're of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. And, and so here he is again. And, and um, it is, it's a noted escalation of, his, of, his, uh, of the conflict because they are charging in and actually p- trying to put a stop to the message that he's communicating. And so he turns the tail. I love the way he does this. Um, 
He says to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And look how he rushes on into verse 25. He rushes on into the question. He sets the conditions and he doesn't even give them the, 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 the time to accept the conditions or to say, okay, deal, right? He just says, tell you what, I'll ask you a question. If you answer me, then I'll answer you. Here's my question. He just keeps on going. He doesn't stop at the end of verse 24 and say, sound good? Is that a deal? Okay. Where they have a chance to say uh, yes or no, or who do you think you are? Or no, you answer our question first or anything like that. Okay. He just sets the agenda and he pushes forward. And now they're trapped. Now they're absolutely trapped. And the reason why they're trapped is because for them, their public image is everything. For them, um, the, the fact that this is in full view of everybody has, has really handcuffed them in a lot of ways because they, they need the support of the people. Uh, without the support of the people, the Pharisee party is actually pretty weak compared to the Sadducees, compared to the priests and the high priests. Uh, the, the strength of the Pharisees is their devotion to the Lord, their, their Bible study, uh, their respected uh, rabbis, uh, and the, the popularity they have among the people. The fact that they were on the forefront of that war against the Greeks to try to, in the Hasmonean warfare, to, to gain their independence against, uh, against the Greeks. So if they lose the popular support, if they lose the, the, the crowds that back them and all that they do, they don't have much left in their, in their conflict with the Sadducees and the, and the other factions uh, within the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin structure here. So by turning the tables on them and throwing the question right back and not giving them a chance to, to think it through or say, no, that's a bad idea. You answer our question first. He just said, look, I'll ask you a question. When you answer mine, I'll answer yours. And he throws the question right at them. And now he's dumped it on them like a hot potato. They're left holding it and they can't answer it. They cannot answer it. He's given them a choice uh, of an either or and, and whichever choice they make is going to be a pre- is going to be a pretty bad choice. All right. So um, this is verse 23 of our text here in Matthew. The parallel accounts, if you want to jot those down, include Mark 11 verses 27 and 28. Luke chapter 20, verses uh, 1 and 2. And they're all pretty well identical to what we're reading here. I don't think we'll need to necessarily turn there to pick up anything additional to what we see here. All right? By what authority are you doing these things? Remember, uh, the last time we we dealt with an authority challenge, uh, it was pretty noteworthy how um, the legalists um, actually, it's a realm of weakness for them. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Anybody that's hyper legalistic, anybody that's hyper, um, that whose whose sin pattern falls into these realms, you you'll tend to note. Scripture describes it, and, and experience observes this. Uh, they tend to crave that power, and they they uh, use that power because that's how they manipulate the the legalists that they're following. Remember, legalism is, is a system by which you have to out uh, outdo the other legalists, and that's how you rise to the top of the of the uh, of the pile so to speak. And so we see this here. Um, They have authority issues themselves, and that's uh, why they're taking issue with him. So Jesus answered their question with a question, right? Aren't you told never to do that? (laughs) I was all growing up in school. Never answer a question with a question, which I reply, well, why not? (laughs) Things like that. Well, in, in some respects, it can be instructive. It is a valid method of communication. It is a valid method of discourse, and Jesus employs it. Um, and so he does so here. And in this chapter, it's verses 24 and the first half of 25a. Uh, the baptism of John, was it from what source? Was it from heaven or was it from men? That's his question. And you can answer A or you can answer B. And whichever way you answer, of course, the Lord's going to uh, have a response. And uh, they realize this, and they realize that they can't. They can't choose either A or B. In Mark 11, it's verses 29 and 30. And in Luke 20, it's verses 3 and 4. Their unwillingness to answer him left him free to disregard their challenge. Okay? As he said, you answer my question, I'll be glad to answer the question you have for me. And he really didn't have any issues answering. He answered it in the past. Uh, he's speaking on his father's authority. He is a spirit-indwelled prophet, an Old Testament prophet. He, uh, he's been delivering the father's message. He has no, no issue, either the first time or the second time, driving out the money changers and teaching the way that he teaches. So he, doesn't really, he has no objections to answering their questions. Um, 
But it is interesting. Uh, he, he puts himself here on a, on a playing field, on a level par with the Sanhedrin itself. And they're demanding an answer, and he's demanding an answer. And since they're not going to give him one, he's not going to give them one. See? And it is, uh, it is an interesting testimony to the fact that he is, of course, obeying his father. He's not subject to this Sanhedrin. He's not subject to this authority structure that uh, uh, others might say, well, he should be. He should be subject to this high priest and so on and so forth. Not so. Not so at all. And clearly not from his, not from his uh, approach. So this leaves him free to disregard their challenge in verse 27. Neither will I tell you. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Neither will I tell you. Okay? Fascinating response. It's, it's actually pretty similar to the neither do I condemn you. Remember that? In John chapter 8. Well, neither will I tell you by what authority do I do these things. Um, and yet, you realize he actually has answered their question. He answered their question contained within his own question for them when he says, the baptism of John, from what source? From heaven or from man? Contained within that question is also the answer, not only as it pertains to John the Baptist, but even for himself. You know, from what authority? It's not coming from man. I'm not making this up. It's not coming from myself. It's coming from heaven. That, that the Son of God, the Son of Man, has come out of heaven with, with the Father's authority, with the Father's message. So even contained within his, his uh, question that he throws back to them is the answer to the question that they asked. Likewise, the answer to their question is going to come out in the parables that he gives. The parable of the two sons and the parable of the landowner will likewise go a long way towards uh, answering their question. Now, I want to learn from this because I think you and I get caught with some things with the unbelievers that start challenging us. Uh, and I hope that this we can, we can adopt this as, an, as a mindset to understand when it's acceptable to not answer the question because he's not answering this question here. All right. Here's the real issue. Um, the chief priests and the elders did not approach the Lord's question on the basis of truth. They really don't want the answer. And they have no interest in truth. They're approaching it on the basis of how either answer would be detrimental to them. They approached the question on the basis of how either answer would be detrimental to them. And when you start observing that with people and the questions they're asking, then you know right off the bat they're not searching for truth. They want to know how does it affect them. See? And we see it here in verses 25b and in verse 26. The chief priests and the elders do not approach the Lord's question on the basis of truth. In other words, it's not an honest question. They're not asking for information. They're not asking in positive volition, desiring to know the truth. See, that requires humility. <laughs> that requires faith. That requires positive volition. They have none of that. They're approaching it on the basis of how either answer would be detrimental to them, and they realize they're stuck. So they began reasoning among themselves saying, well, if this, we're in trouble. If that, then we're in trouble. Notice the truth doesn't concern them at all. They don't, they don't care which answer is the right answer. Is how are they affected if they answer A or if they answer B. <laughs> okay? And we encounter this. And, and I hope you understand why this is so important, because every one of us is under an obligation. We have an imperative that we must be ready to give an account to any who might ask. For the hope that is within us, yet with gentleness and with reverence, okay, we have to have a perspective to understand, first and foremost, in the fear of the Lord, what our true mission is in, in proclaiming Christ to this lost and dying world. And to recognize that they may be asking a question, but they're not asking the question. Does that make sense? They're not asking in faith. They're not asking in positive volition. They're not asking to know the truth. They don't really want to know. They're a brood of vipers. They're trying to lay a, either trying to lay a trap or they're, they're trying to do something to discredit you or they're just, uh, maybe they're just being ornery. Okay? Are you obligated to answer the ornery people? Does that fall within the scope of the, of the imperative to always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you? 
Does that fall into the imperative to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? Okay, Because if they're not asking for information, then you're not obligated, in my view, in my conviction of that passage, that we're to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I'm not here to debate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age, we're told? Not my job. Not my job. I'm here to feed the flock that he's entrusted to me, and I'm here to give an answer. I'm here to give an account for the hope that is within me. But if they're not going to ask on a legitimate basis, if they're just being snakes in the grass, ask, you know, asking confrontationally or trying to trap this or trap that or whatever, all right, see you. Have a good day. Okay. In my mind, this is where you make the faith discernment to, uh, to identify the pearls before a swine. To identify not casting what is holy to, you know, to the dogs and just walking away from it. That's not what we're called to do. Not what we're called to do. If someone is truly humble, they're truly wanting to know, they really want to know, then yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer any question they have. I'll stay with them all day long to midnight and later and whatever. I'll answer any question in the, in the universe when they're legitimate questions. See, And I believe here we have the illustration of, of the Lord taking the same approach. Are they interested in the truth? Do they seem concerned whether answer A is the correct and accurate answer, whether B is the correct and accurate answer? I mean, it seems to be an either or with mutual exclusivity. It's either coming from man or it's coming from heaven. Either or. It can't be both. And uh, they realize that they can't choose either. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? If John the Baptist was a legitimate prophet, teaching a message from Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, they're in trouble. Because <laughs> they didn't, uh, oh yeah, they went out and observed some of the, the festivities at the River Jordan and whatever, but John the Baptist called him a brood of vipers and said, what are you doing here? Okay. Um, they did not obey his message. They did not believe his message. And as his final message, his, the pinnacle of his message was, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? And they rejected that. So they can't say that he was from heaven. Neither can they say that it was from men. In other words, it's a human message or he was a phony or he just made it up and so forth. They can't say that because none of the people are going to accept that. If we say from men, we fear the people. We fear the people for they all regard John as a prophet. Now they've got a problem. Because they can deny it all they want, but the people know better. The people know better. They know that John was unique. They know that Jesus was unique. The people recognized that John first and then Jesus, they had a message unlike anything else that was going on from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or any other teacher. And even though John did no miracles, I think uh, you know Jesus did enough to <laughs> make up for that. Uh, even though John did no miracles, they could not deny his prophetic office. And he announced the the uh, Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God's been doing miracles for three and a half years. And so now they're really stuck. Their fear of the people. Um, crafting their answer based upon the image. Based upon how it be received. That's horrible. And yet is it not pretty typical for a lot of churches today? A lot of ministries today? Isn't it kind of common practice for many pastors to basically teach and answer questions and, and approach ministry based upon uh, what's going to keep their people happy? Okay. I don't want to rock the boat too badly or I don't want to preach about this particular sin because my uh, i got a couple of deacons that are involved in that right now. I wouldn't want to make them uncomfortable. <laughs> so let's not touch that sin. Let's not touch that sin. i got a little list of things here. I'm kind of off out of bounds now because I, you know, hmm can't drive them away they're they're the biggest giver in the church say hmm. i'll never forget ralph braun's story he uh, was telling a man that he either needed to repent of a particular activity uh in violation of his marriage vows uh or depart the flock because he was no longer uh in fellowship with the lord in the fellowship with the flock and uh the man got confrontational said well how dare you can't throw me out. Do you know how much money I give? And Ralph didn't. He said, no, I don't have a clue. He said, I don't care. Whatever it is, you're going to get a refund. <laughs> Went to his treasure and said, whatever he's given, you're to date, return it. Return it. That man's not coming back. 
And, uh, you know, I wish I had stories like that. I got to steal <laughs> stories from older pastors. But um, I learned from them. I think, okay, well, the day may come. They don't want the truth. They're not interested in the truth. They're not children of truth. And so uh, we do not know. In verse 27, so he says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know what I appreciate about the people? Here's a blessing for us under point D. The people were not hampered by their legalistic religious structure. Oh, they had a fair amount of it because of how they grew up and how the Pharisees had led them and so forth. But when they were face to face with John, they, they, they knew it when they heard it. When they were face to face with Jesus, many of them knew it when they heard it. And the people said, look, this is the Christ. Even the Pharisees don't realize who this is, do they? What a difference between the people and the religious leaders. The people were not hampered by their legalistic religious structure and actually acknowledged the reality of John's heavenly message. They knew he was a prophet. And it's even almost universal in the, in the language that's used here. In verse 26, did you notice the all that's in there? For they all regard John as a prophet. That's universal. That means that, that, that as a whole, the population of Jerusalem had come to that conclusion, despite what their religious leaders were telling them. There's going to be a similar reality uh, as it relates to many of the Jews uh, respecting Jesus. Um, back up to verse 11 of the same chapter. Remember when he had the triumphal entry, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the city was stirred saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. They knew he was a prophet. Okay. They could have done better than that. They could have said this is the Christ, but at least they understood he was a prophet, like John the Baptist was a prophet. Uh, a little bit after our verse, down to verse 46, the end of this chapter. Uh, when they sought to seize him, see, this is the Pharisees. Finally, after the second parable, they're catching on. <laughs> and the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They understood he was speaking about them. And uh, so when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Again, a significant number of the people, not the religious leaders, but the people regarded, considered him to be a prophet. Um, there's another passage. Um, I just remember because it was so uh, expressive. John 7. Remember this? When... Um, he, he came late to the Feast of Tabernacles and his brothers were trying to urge him to go up and he said, no, I'm not going to go. And then he actually did go a little bit later in uh, secret, in disguise or so forth. And then, um, and then he finally does stand up in the midst of the feast and he, started, he does start teaching in John 7, verses 16 down through 24. And then in John 7:25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? <laughs> you know, like in this picture in the post office, isn't that the, the number one on the most wanted list there? Um, look, he is speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. They want him dead. Why aren't they arresting him? What's going on? And, and so the people are starting to piece together that maybe their religious leaders aren't telling them everything or, or aren't being honest about what they know and what they what they believe. So look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? And they're starting to wonder. Is this the Christ? Has the Sanhedrin concluded that this is the Christ and they're not telling us? Why are they not arresting him? If, if they really want him dead, why are they letting him teach like this? And so they're starting to put two and two together and they're... They're not liking the four that they're seeing, okay? Because the, 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 when, they, when, they, when they're doing the math, they're coming to the conclusion that it's not describing their leaders very favorably. They still have some other questions, though, because they say, well, we know where this man's from, but when the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from, and they got a little bit of confusion there. It makes you wonder why uh, the Pharisees hadn't uh, been more, or why the teachers hadn't been more clear on the the birth at Bethlehem and the other things that, uh, that they were very much aware of. Okay? There's a principle here, and I, I appreciate this. God will always provide for truly hungry sheep. God will always provide for truly hungry sheep. And 
it was my other reason for turning to John 7, was that we had a principle here in verse 17. If you desire to know the truth, is this message from heaven? Is this message from man? Is this the Bible being taught? Is this God's truth? Or is this just the opinion of some smarty pants human being that's trying to dazzle you with his credentials or whatever? Don't have to worry about that. If you're humble before God, he will guide you into the truth. You have the, in fact, more than even the Old Testament believers have, you got the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, John 7, 17. This actually came up Sunday night in our hermeneutics class too, by the way. If anyone is willing, or verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. And I love this. This is the same context of what we were just looking at uh, here in John 7. In the midst of the feast, Jesus went up in the temple, began to teach. Began to teach. You didn't need authority. You didn't need permission. The Sanhedrin didn't control any rabbi. If there was space in a courtyard, if there was space in one of the rooms, if there was space in the temple complex and the precincts, I mean, you didn't go into the holy place, but in the, the temple grounds, there were various courtyards and various rooms and various chambers and porticos and steps and all kinds of places. And teachers from all over the place would uh, gather their disciples around and, and, uh, and have a Bible class. And the Jews were then astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? In other words, calling him illiterate. Okay? Which he's far from illiterate. But in their minds, if you don't have the diploma from their school, right? You know, like Sarah Palin. <laughs> she doesn't have Harvard or Yale or one of the Ivy League degrees. So she's basically, you know, an illiterate moron uh, as far as the the powers that be are concerned okay not just her anybody that doesn't go to the ivy league you, you went to a state college you went to a community college you might as well be uh you know neanderthal so jesus answered them and said my teaching is not mine but his who sent me if anyone is willing to do his will he will know of the teaching whether it is of god or whether i speak from myself this question he throws back at them when he says that the ministry of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? Um, the people know. They knew he was a prophet. They knew he was a prophet. And this is the thing. I think uh, believers who want to know the truth uh, can, be, can rest in faith that God will take them to the truth. They don't have to worry about, um, and they should be alert for false teaching. They should be mindful of, of the snares, but, but they don't have to be paranoid or scared or, or, or filled with doubts and fears that, that somehow they're going to fall for some, some phony. They're going to fall for some charlatan. No. If you want to know the truth, if you're, if you're obedient on positive volition, willing to do the will, the, the will of God, then you're going to know. You're going to know that what you're hearing is truth. The Holy Spirit will testify with your human spirit and you're going to know. You don't have to fear that, well, what if, what if I just you know, get caught up in something? No, if you're humble and you want to do God's will, you're going to know. That's what this verse says. See, the, uh, the scripture says the people who get caught up under the false teachers are the ones who want to be caught up with the false teachers. The ones that accumulate for themselves the ear ticklers, the teaching according to their own desire. They follow after false teaching because that's what they want. If you honestly want to know the truth, you will know the truth. Right? All right. God will always provide for truly hungry sheep. I could add to this. I could add Ezekiel 34 and the good shepherd, the faithful shepherd feeding the flock and so forth. Um, so many principles that attach to this. All right. Well, here's the challenge. And I think in our, in our application then, if, uh, you know, if, if you are encountering a, a situation of a similar nature where they're challenging and, and, and confrontational and, and all the rest of that, um, telling you, well, how do you know the Bible's true? And, you know, just being whatever, you know, it may not be your role to answer that. You know, there, there, there is a place for apologetics. There's answers to all these confrontational, ugly questions. Um, you're just going to have to come to the faith discernment and say, you know, um, that's not why I'm here. That's not why I'm here. All right. 
So let's, uh, we've got some time. Let's look at this parable, the parable of the two sons in verses 28 through 32. And uh, he goes on uh, almost without a breath uh, when he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, but what do you think? And he, now he throws a, a new question at him. A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? This is such an awesome parable. They don't realize, again, he's got them just as stuck as they were with the last question he asked them. Only they can't figure it out and they don't realize. So they go ahead and answer. They don't realize that, um, that he's going to have a response for them whichever way they do answer. But they answer uh, correctly. You know, they say, well, the, the first. Even though initially he said he wasn't going to do it, he finally did in the end go and, and do it. Truly I say to you, he doesn't say you're right. He doesn't say you're wrong. Um, they are right. It, he did finally obey. Not immediately, but finally. Um, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. <laughs> I can't think of anything else more insulting that they would have been more offended by than that, right? I mean, think about it. These guys are the guys that are totally trusting in their own righteousness. And now they're tax collectors and prostitutes or... In front of us, in this, in this line, what are you talking about? They're going to get there before us? They're going to be ranked higher than us? Assuming that we even make it? <laughs> okay. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. See, he never even changed the subject. He's still dealing with the ministry of John the Baptist. He hadn't even left the, the same subject. And, and, uh, and they don't realize that uh, they probably should have not answered this question either. Uh, like they didn't answer the previous question. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. You didn't even have the delayed obedience because you felt bad over the initial uh, disobedience. So how bad is that for where these guys are and what they're dealing with? All right, so what's this parable about? This parable is a follow-up. This parable is a follow-up to the previous exchange where neither party answered the other's question. It's a follow-up. So he says, well, what do you think about this? And he asks them another question. And this one they do answer. And um, it's kind of interesting. The, um, the nature of parables, the nature of stories, how stories communicate and how stories are in agreement, um, to me, it's part of the, the beauty of Scripture. It's, the, it's the, the glory in the way that um, the Bible includes all the variety of, of poetry and prose narrative and uh, parables and allegories and um, proverbs, uh, other modes of literature. Say dramas. I think about Ezekiel and the different skits that he acted out and the different dramas that he pantomimed and so forth. Um, to me, it's just the part of the beauty of Scripture that, that there is all this variety in the different modes of communication. So he starts to tell this story and they start to they get pulled into the story, right? Like the, 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 the prodigal son. Does, does the prodigal son chapter not just come alive every time you go to it? And every time you go to it, you, you're immediately cast into the, into the, the, the scene. A, a father has two sons, an older son and a younger son, and the younger son wants his inheritance and goes out and does that. I mean, you just every time you go to that chapter, you're, you're brought into the story yet again. And every time the younger son comes back, and every time the father welcomes him, and every time the older brother, you, wanna, you just want to scream and say, can't you just for once get this right? <laughs> but every time you read the chapter, that older brother still has the pride and still has the, the uh, disapproval of the father's grace and forgiveness. Um. But it's the nature of these parables, it's the nature of these stories that come in and they, they, they capture our imagination, they capture our thinking. We put ourselves in these conditions and say, well, you know, how, what, would, what would our role be in this? You know, am I the father? Am I the younger brother? Am I the older brother? Where, which one of these describes me? Okay. Here's a father and two sons. Which one of these describes me? 
when, when it becomes clear that the Father's given me a work assignment? Am I very quick to say, oh, yes, 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 I'll do that, and then I'm pretty weak on the follow-up? Where I maybe don't get it all done, or maybe I don't get any of it done. Is that, does that describe my Christian walk? Or am I the first one? Am I the first son that I find out what the work assignment is, and I say, oh, I don't want to think, I don't want any part of that. And then later on I started thinking, well, wait a minute. The Father assigned this to me. You know what? I probably ought to do this. Yeah, you know. Uh, as, as unpleasant as this assignment is, the divine discipline for defying Jesus Christ is a lot worse. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and walk in the, in the path that, uh, that Christ has for me. See, which, which of these sons do I find myself more, uh, more in tune with? Well, the truth is here, of course, the Pharisees, um, or the, the Sanhedrin here, the audience that he's speaking to, um, they're really neither of the boys. They, they come the closest to the second one in the sense that they, maybe they made a verbal profession, but all they are is just external show with no reality. So you could think of the Pharisees as being, as being the second son who has a, a verbal obedience, but, but no reality. And that's pretty descriptive. They, they, uh, Jesus told them that you know, they were like whitewashed tombs. Uh, they looked polished and clean and white on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. All right, so they might have an external appearance of, of righteousness, but internally they were just hideous and, uh, and that. But they don't even have remorse. They don't even have a conscience that has an emotional um, recognition of their wrongdoing. And if they don't have that, which is a far lower standard than actual repentance... Okay. This isn't met metanoia. This is not metanoia. This, there's no repentance in this chapter. There is remorse. There is regret. See, and they don't even have that. They don't even have enough decency to to be ashamed of what they're doing in the in the plan of God. That tells you something. It tells you something. All right. So it's a follow up to the previous exchange, and you understand, and you see this in the context he, uh, when he says, "For John came to you in the way of righteousness." That that Jesus is still in the context of the ministry of John the Baptist. He's never left that subject. He just changed methodology to go into a parable mode, and uh, and they uh, they actually nailed themselves when they answered the question there in verse thirty one. All right. Son number one. Son number one. What's his story? Son number one verbally defies his father. He says, I'm not going to do that. And uh, it's interesting when he says, I will not. And it's only afterward that he regrets it. And so, uh, as I read this anyway, and I think most of the commentaries are in agreement on this, the father doesn't realize that he had regretted it later on and actually gone out there to do it. Because then the man comes to the second son. And I think in verse 30, when the man comes to the second son and says the same thing, I think he's doing so uh, still during the time of his oldest son's rebellion and, and uh, you know, with the recognition that there's, there's work to be done and the older son's not going to do it. He didn't take both sons to do it because he, he only went to one son to say, son, go work today in the vineyard. And so when uh, the older son says, no, I'm not going to do it, then the man goes to the second son and says the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But then after the father says, all right, appreciate it, and whatever, goes back to his office and pours into the cup of coffee. Uh, <laughs> um, the second son then blows it off and says, well, that was easy. You know, I'll get to it at some point. Okay. Now, here's what happens. It's actually the defiant son who actually went out in the vineyard and did it. So the father could be completely oblivious. You know, the father may go out there at the end of the day and see that it's been done. And what's he going to assume? Yeah, it was the younger boy that did it because that's the boy that said he was going to do it, right? As far as the father knows, he's scratching his head thinking, what am I going to do with that rebel I've got for a firstborn son? How dare he? What's he, what's he doing? So, yeah, there's a lot of principles, I think, that come from a story like this that, that have you wondering. So he verbally defies his father, but he regrets it later. He regrets it later. And he actually does what he was commanded to do. Now, the term to regret here is not metanoia. Okay, it's metamelamai. And you want to understand this. If you've never had these word studies before, I know Colonel Theme used to teach these quite a bit. Um, we'll have it. Uh, it's in Second Corinthians 7, don't you know? So we'll be looking at this. Um, 
metamelamize, only used six times in the New Testament. M-E-T-A, the same meta in metanoeo. Melamai, M-E-L-O-M-A-I. And this is a, it's a, uh, it's an emotional aspect. There's a, there's a regret. Okay. Maybe it's based on guilt or maybe it's based on whatever. It's a sorrow. It's a regret. It's emotional. Uh, it may or may not accompany repentance. Don't feel like metanoia. Uh, meta, uh, the repentance does not require regret. It may feature regret, but it's, but regret is not an essential component to repentance. We've taught repentance many times. Metanoia is a change of thinking. That's repentance. Where you understand that your prior way of thinking was not in God's will. This way of thinking is in conformity with God's will. And the change of thinking is what repentance actually is. It's not emotional. So we have it here. Matthew 21, verses 29 and 32. It's used twice. The older son had regrets, and so he went out and did the work. Um, when he's rebuking these uh, religious leaders, he said, you know, you guys saw the tax collectors and prostitutes obeying and believing, but even seeing this, you did not even feel remorse afterwards. You didn't even metamelamai when you saw the tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes. You didn't even feel remorse so as to believe him. You know, much less repentance. You didn't even forget reaching repentance. You didn't even reach regret. See, it's a lower standard. It's a lower standard. Uh, it'll come back again in Matthew, very famously, in Matthew 27. And, and this, is, this is pretty, uh, like I say, famous. It's, it's, it's a good place to see the, the concept illustrated because there's no repentance here. It's just simply remorse. It's like later on, uh, it's like the uh, remorse that uh, Esau had for selling his birthright. He, he found no place for repentance, even though he sought for the birthright with tears. It wasn't repentance. It was just an earthly sorrow. Similar here with Judas Iscariot in Matthew 27. Um, after the betrayal and after the arrest, and they came, conferred together against Jesus to put him to death, they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, what did he think was going to happen? <laughs> right? Uh, what, did he, you know, what did he suspect was going to happen after the betrayal? When he saw that he'd been condemned, he felt remorse. Remorse. Human guilt. And understand, if you're an unbeliever, you're a slave to this more often than not. Human remorse. He felt remorse. He met a melamide. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver. So he didn't even get to keep the, the blood money he'd made. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See that yourself. Sorry, no, no refunds on, uh, on assassination blood money. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you have a receipt for that? You know, we don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're going to acknowledge that they paid him for this uh, false test. Of course, they're not going to acknowledge that. All right. You know, when's the last time you hired a hitman? Do they give you receipts? Do you, you know, to get things in writing? Come on. All right. <laughs> and so he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and hanged himself and here they're going to buy the potter's field and here you can appreciate the, the minor prophets we went through last year and the issues there anyway what are we dealing with is this repentance does Judas get saved here no no Judas is the son of perdition Judas perishes Judas is uh not repentant. He's not saved. He is uh, full of regrets. Metamelamai. And that's the use of it there. Over in Second Corinthians, we'll have this coming up in uh, chapter 7, which we just got our first glimpse at chapter 7 Sunday morning. But it's used twice in verse 8. Where uh, Paul's thankful over the coming of Titus and... Um, how Titus had reported uh, the Corinthians longing and mourning and zeal so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, and I will discuss both the first Corinthian correspondence as well as the sorrowful letter that I believe was a subsequent follow-up in between first and second Corinthians. 
Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not metamelomite it. I do not regret it. I don't feel bad at all over that letter I sent that caused you so much sorrow. Although I did regret it. There was a time that I did. In other words, until he learned of their repentance. Until he learned of their response. Once the response took place, he stopped regretting it. Isn't that interesting? So, um, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. And I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, that's not the purpose. The purpose wasn't to make you sorrowful. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. There's the metanoel, repentance. Sorrow can be a good thing. Not for its own sake and not for its own purpose. God doesn't make you sad because he wants you sad. But in that sadness, he's getting your attention to a component of the divine discipline you're under to, to wake you up, to, to change your thinking. And at some point, I know I do, I hope we all do, we get to a point where you say, you know, I, I don't want any more of that. <laughs> okay, uh, this is enough. Uh, and, and I'm actually a little bit afraid of what the next step might be. If I don't uh, return to fellowship now, wonder how close I am to the sin of death. I, actually, I don't want to know. Maybe there'll be an instant replay uh, at the judgment seat, but I hope not. Um, I'm going to confess now. I'm going to get right now. Enough is enough. No more. And so sorrow can lead to repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Man, I love that. I love that. Put that on your refrigerator. <laughs> okay? Not often included in will of God studies. But there is a component to the will of God that where He uses sorrow to wake you up. So you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Something a lot worse than uh, some earthly sorrow. And that's eternal sorrow because you continued in your stupidity and threw away eternal rewards. So a little bit of sorrow here in time to wake you up and rescue from that, to prevent the eternal loss of reward and the eternal sorrow, it's a, it's a good trade in my mind and in the Scripture's description here. Anyway, so that's a verse that has metamelami uh, twice, and you guys are now ahead of the, the rest of the crowd that uh, will get that on an upcoming uh, Sunday or, or Wednesday service. The final use is in Hebrews 7.21. Hebrews 7.21. And it's uh, an interesting rendering because it's a quotation from the uh, Septuagint uh, with reference to the oath. He with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not metamelamai, will not change his mind. He will not regret it. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And you go back to Psalm 110 and you get the context there. Uh, but God has sworn and does not regret it. Okay, does not regret it. God is not a man that he regrets what he does or changes his mind in a, in in regret. You understand. So here's son number one, and and ultimately, is this not us on a lot of occasions, where um, and and where we obey eventually, uh, but we weren't exactly speedy about it. Okay. All right, and somehow is that better? Is that better than, uh, than the one who says, oh yeah, I'll do that, and then fails to follow through, or only does it part way, or only does part of it? Okay. Well, ideally, you might think it's better, but ultimately, neither of them are better. The better is immediate acceptance and then speedy obedience. See, obeying the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and not uh, dilly-dallying about, uh, about certain things. All right, son number two. Oh, I'm 11 o'clock already. Son number two verbally obeys his father but does not follow through with the actual command. Verbally obeys his father, but does not follow through with the actual command. And I think this is a whole lot of us. A whole lot of us. We get, a, we get a doctrine, we get a teaching, and we say, oh yeah, that's right, that applies to me, I'm going to do that. We get a teaching about evangelism and we realize that every believer is an ambassador every believer is to have their feet shot every believer is to proclaim christ and you get the doctrine you say that's right i'm gonna i'm an ambassador i i'm supposed to give the gospel and then does it happen 
Okay. Or uh, a message comes and you, you come under conviction for grace giving, financial support of a local church. And you say, yep, that's right. That, I'm gonna, that's got to be a priority. Does it follow through? Or do we find ourselves as son number two? <laughs> okay, I think there's a lot of realms that we find ourselves as son number two, just like there's a lot of realms we find ourselves as, as son number one. All right, well, I am out of time. We will come back to this one week from today, Lord willing and rapture pending. I need to chart out for you, too. This is still January, but we need to uh, start looking ahead to February and the trip to Ukraine and the, what uh, you're going to do in terms of prayer time since we're not having Life in Christ class during the, uh, the trip to Ukraine. So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll make some announcements on that next week. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for this study. Thank you for these uh, folks that had the uh, time and opportunity to make it out here today. And Father, I pray that uh, this passage would come alive in our thinking, that we would consider these two sons, we would consider our, our own faith and our own obedience, and we would consider the, uh, the legalism of these religious leaders and the uh, tremendous grace appreciation on the part of the tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes, Father. And I pray that each one of us would come to recognize that we're all sinners saved by grace, we're all tax collectors and prostitutes, but you uh, sent your son to provide for us eternal life. And Father, what a joy. Thank you for being so faithful. Thank you for providing uh, what we could not provide for ourselves. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.